Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Today, we are joined by fellows from Mayo Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Joining us, we have Dr. Mays Ali, Dr. Charlie Jane, and Dr. Karosh Sharain. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourselves? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. My name's Mace. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow. I completed my medical school at Johns Hopkins and my internal medicine residency and a chief year at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in Baltimore. So this is Karosh Sharain. I'm very excited to be part of this podcast. I'm originally from Chicago. I did my med school at Loyola, and then I've been at Mayo Clinic for the last eight years. I did internal medicine residency, chief year, and now cardiology, and I'm doing an advanced fellowship in multimodality imaging. I love Rochester. I love how outdoorsy it is, and I can't wait to tell you more about our fellowship. Hi, I'm Charlie Jane. I'm one of the cardiology fellows here at Mayo Clinic as well. I'm currently subspecializing in adult congenital heart disease from Chicago as well, and did my med school at University of Illinois and residency at Massachusetts General, and then I did general cardiology here. Very honored to be part of the CardioNerds podcast series and look forward to contributing. Mace, Charlie, Grosh, oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. We are just so honored and delighted. And this is a particularly exciting time for us because we are touring the country virtually. And today we have the opportunity of visiting you guys in Rochester. And this is a real opportunity for you to tell us about Rochester and your favorite locale. Take us to your favorite place so we can have a great discussion. I've never been. I'm coming. Take us to your favorite place where we can have this good chat and talk about a great patient case. It's a little bit tough to pick just one spot, but I think we'll take you on a little bit of a trip through Rochester. So you can picture a Saturday morning, wake up, you go to Grand Park to the farmer's market, pick up some fresh fruit, vegetables, flowers, which are my favorite to grab every single week. Some coffee from Peace Coffee is always there. Some delicious pastries from Persimmon Bakery or Squash Blossom Farm. After we're done with the farmer's market, we'll take a bike ride over to Quarry Hill Park. We'll then put on our hiking shoes. We'll go for a nice walk along the trail, maybe bring the family, the kiddos, the pets along. And as we stroll through the trails, we'll tell you a little bit about this case. Mace, you had me at farmer's market. I just love this. We're hanging out at the farmer's market. We're all finding food to eat. I'm stuck in a coffee line because that's I've got to have that first thing Saturday morning. And now with my cup of joe, let's talk about your awesome case. What do we have? Great. So while the traditional way to present a case is start with the history, followed by your exam, and then the lab, EKG, chest x-ray, echo, etc., we chose to present this case the way that cases tend to come to us these days, as many of us are training at referral centers. So we're going to start with chart review of the outside records, then review the studies performed here before you meet the patient, chest x-ray, echo and then follow with our own H&P. This is a patient that Dr. Nishimura saw with one of us in clinic. 
So this is the story of Miss R, who was referred for severe mitral regurgitation. On initial chart review, we note that she's 48 years old and has been having progressive dyspnea on exertion over the past 6 to 12 months, along with orthopnea. She has not had any chest pain or peripheral edema. Digging a little bit deeper into the chart reveals that she has a history of lupus, diagnosed 28 years ago, for which she's on hydroxychloroquine. She also has a history of hypertension, esophageal strictures, and she had a prior splenectomy for an episode of ITP. She is a current smoker. Testing at our institution prior to our visit showed a chest x-ray with borderline enlarged cardiac silhouette, biatrial enlargement, no clear LV enlargement. There were clear lung fields. The ECHO report commented on a couple of things. We note that the report mentions severe mitral regurgitation with thickened leaflets and thickened subvalvular apparatus consistent with post-inflammatory valve disease. The left ventricle was normal-sized with an ejection fraction of 57%. The right ventricle was normal-sized and function with a right ventricular systolic pressure of 46 millimeters of mercury, and there was moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation and a dilated IVC. Wow, that was great, Maze. Thanks for the thorough chart review. But despite already having all this information, it's really important that you keep an open mind when you meet the patient yourself. It's also important to think a few steps ahead based on the referral diagnosis. This not only helps patient care, but it can really save you from that terrible feeling you can have when you're staffing with your attending and you realize that you didn't clarify something that you should have. So what stands out as things that you need to sort out from your own history and physical? Thanks, Krosh. One thing that was a little surprising to me is the normal size of the left ventricle, despite severe mitral regurgitation. Typically, I'd expect volume loading to cause left ventricular enlargement. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That being said, based on valve guidelines, if there's severe MR with symptoms, that's enough to warrant intervention. But since everything doesn't quite fit perfectly here, you should really make sure there's no other cause for her dyspnea. Great point. So I've kept you on your toes long enough. Without further ado, upon chatting with Miss R, she corroborates the history gathered in outside records in that she is so dyspneic now that she can't use the stairs while carrying laundry. She tires more easily with all activities, and when we ask her perceived functional capacity, she rates it a 5 out of 10. On exam, her vitals are as follows. Heart rate 64, blood pressure 110 over 79, respiratory rate of 18, She's breathing comfortably on room air and saturating 97%. Generally, she appears fatigued, but in no acute distress. Examining her neck veins, we see that her jugular venous pressure is mildly elevated to the lower third of the neck at 45 degrees. She has rapid X and Y descents and positive Kussmaul's. There are no carotid bruises bilaterally. Her vessels are normal intensity, radial, and posterior tibial pulses. Her PMI is displaced to the anterior axillary line. She has a 1 out of 3 RV heave. Regular rate and rhythm, normal S1 with a physiologic splitting of S2. There's a P2 heard at the left lower sternal border, a 1 out of 6 holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border, a 3 out of 6 low-pitched holosystolic murmur at the apex. There's also an early diastolic sound at the apex heard with the bell. I don't appreciate any reps. Her lungs, she has normal work of breathing, normal breath sounds bilaterally. Her extremities are warm and well-perfused. There's no edema. Her abdomen is non-tender, non-distended, and liver is non-pulsatile. So that's what I have for you. So now my question is, how do we put this all together? What fits, what doesn't? Well, I think what fits is that the exam suggests severe mitral regurgitation with the murmur and the early diastolic filling sound. And indeed, the echo reported severe mitral regurgitation, but the LV is normal in size. The curveball for me that just didn't fit was the JVP. What's with those descents and that Kussmaul's? Maze, what did that make you think of? Yeah, that was surprising. Rapid X and Y descent certainly raised flags for constrictive pericarditis. That's further supported by the lack of decrease in jugular venous pressure with inspiration, aka the infamous Kussmaul sign. So actually, when I saw those, I dug a little deeper in her history, and sure enough, she told me she had a bout of pericarditis 20 years ago when she was first diagnosed with lupus. And since then, she intermittently has had a pleuritic chest pain. Oofta! I just want to actually say three things. One, and really, I have nothing to add in the way the case is progressing beyond just a couple of reflections. One, as many of these programs, you know, as a referral center, we get patients all the time that have been under the care of another provider. And what you did from the get-go was trust but verify, you know, and this uh, impulse to really approach the patient afresh and develop your own assessment, I think, is such an important guiding principle. So I love that. 
My second reflection is that this physical exam is just so absolute top-notch. And even before we go into the advanced multimodality imaging or invasive hemodynamics, we already are starting to have differentiating features that are going to guide us one way or another and telling us that as the patient was built, there's more to the story. And then my third comment is I just love that onomatopoeia, oofta. That was just, that was perfect, spot on. I feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this physical exam is beautiful because it's not just that it's thorough. It's that it interrogates the heart from both the right side and the left side. And and just to reflect, and this is, again, more to bring out what you've said and the way this case is being presented, you're expecting a left-sided problem. The whole referral was for mitral regurgitation. And so your ears are prickled at the idea that, okay, let's look at the LV. And then when you sniff out that the LV doesn't look like it's having such a struggle or it's not dilated as you would expect with the mitral regurgitation, it makes you think broader. And then the physical exam, which again, usually comes before the echo, but here you're using your physical exam to interrogate both sides of the heart. And when you look at those venous structures, you know, the JVP, that really is going to give you a big clue to the right side of the heart. And then that triggers you off to this idea that, wow, the filling is abnormal here. There is a problem. And so that is cluing you into a additional process besides mitral regurgitation and making you think, again, holistically and broadly. And it's not just about being embarrassed in front of an attending when you present it. It's almost like you don't want to be embarrassed in front of yourself to be like, wow, I totally uh, was all about the MR. And so I was just focused on whole systolic murmurs and where it's going in the mitral position. And the fact that we are approaching this patient holistically, right side of the heart, left side of the heart, in this systematic way is just telling us how your patient is being served so nicely. Agreed. In terms of the JVP, I didn't see that coming. And one thing that's great in terms of many teachers here at the Mayo Clinic, they really hold us accountable for our exam, um, encouraging us to be thorough. So way to go, Maze, with thinking on your feet for this case. Let's keep on digging. So looking at the actual images, I agree that LV is normal in size and has preserved systolic function. The mitral valve and subvalvular apparatus are severely thickened, and the mitral regurgitation jet looks pretty severe by color flow itself. By Doppler, it's a really dense signal, and it's whole systolic. I also see systolic reversals in the pulmonary veins. Thinking ahead, the subvalvular thickening tells me that the valve repair may not be the best option for her, and that she'll likely need valve replacement. There's at least moderate tricuspid regurgitation as well, and it looks to be due to annular dilation. But in regards to this question about constriction, Naturally, I looked at the Mayo Clinic criteria for constricted pericarditis by echo. I don't see any obvious respiratory septal shift, which is usually the most sensitive sign, but the medial E-prime is borderline elevated at 0.09 meters per second, and on closer evaluation of the hepatic veins, I do see some expiratory diastolic reversals. This tends to be a fairly important sign for constricted pericarditis with a positive predictive value of about 96%. Karosh, as always, that was masterful. Thanks for breaking it down. Agreed. And looking back at the chest x-ray, on the lateral view, there actually is some calcification in the posterior pericardium. This is something that can commonly be seen in patients with constriction, but radiology rarely calls it out, so it's always important to look for. Back in the day, this sign was relied on a lot. So just to summarize so far, our exam and echo fit with severe mitral regurgitation, but the rapid descent in the JVP doesn't fit with the MR or TR. And there's more to the story with the history of pericarditis and some pericardial calcification. So, what to do? Sounds to me like it's time for the table of truth. We need definitive assessment for constriction with simultaneous right and left heart catheterization. She'll also need preoperative coronaries for the severe mitral regurgitation that, as we talked about, will likely need to be replaced. And given the normal size left ventricle, a left ventriculogram could be reasonable to make sure we are not overcalling the mitral regurgitation. Luckily enough, a lot of the traditional catheterization criteria for constrictive pericarditis was standardized here by Earlwood back in the 1950s. These are the things that we talk about, like the dip and plateau, sign on the ventricular tracings, the rapid descents, absence of pulmonary hypertension. And then in addition, a lot of the more modern criteria, ventricular interdependence, intrathoracic intracardiac dissociation, were established by Dr. Nishimura and colleagues here in the more recent past. And one great thing about Mayo is that we can make things happen really quickly here. So the next day, the patient went to the cath lab with Dr. Nishimura and the fellow he was working with. So the first tracing obtained is the right atrial pressure. Sure enough, it shows findings consistent with our JVP. 
Pressure is only mild to moderately elevated, around 9 millimeters of mercury, but there are prominent X and Y descents. In addition, with inspiration, the mean right atrial pressure does not change, consistent with the Kussmaul sign seen on exam as well. Way to go with that exam, Maze. We then pass catheters into the right and left ventricles. So now, with inspiration, there is equalization of diastolic pressures. In addition, the left ventricle and right ventricle show dip and plateau pattern in early diastole, suggestive that most of ventricular filling occurs during the first third of diastole, which is commonly seen in restrictive cardiomyopathy and constrictive pericarditis. In addition, with inspiration, while we expect to see both left and right ventricular stroke volume decrease and therefore systolic pressure decrease as well, here we see the LV systolic pressure decreases and the stroke volume also decreases. We can get a proxy for the stroke volume by looking at the width of the systolic tracing or essentially the area under the curve. So now while the left ventricular stroke volume decreased, the RV systolic pressure and stroke volume increased as suggested by the broader tracing with more area under the curve. This is ventricular interdependence. So is it constriction? It really could be, but other diseases, particularly those that have large intrathoracic pressure swings such as COPD or obesity, can also have ventricular interdependence. In these cases, a superior vena cava doppler could be helpful. So I think we still need some more information, Charlie. So guys, I'm loving this discussion, and we're getting so much incredible data. And to summarize, it sounds like we've got a patient who's coming in with heart failure symptoms. The chest x-ray is fairly clear. We don't have a ton of pulmonary edema. This patient is not on a lot of oxygen. It sounds like it's predominantly right-sided symptoms, potentially. And we touched on this in our episode with colleagues from Duke, as well as from the University of Tennessee, that when you have this sort of complex of symptoms, you have to think about a few causes. Is it restrictive cardiomyopathy with normal volume, thick ventricles? Is it constrictive pericarditis that's impeding flow and filling of the ventricles? Is it pulmonary hypertension or right-sided valvular disease? We've gotten so much interesting and very useful data from the echocardiogram and invasive hemodynamics and even the physical exam, but would you walk me through what we're thinking right now and how the data fine-tunes the differential? Yeah, thank you for that summary. I think just taking a step back, when we think about constrictive pericarditis at a very basic level, the pericardium should usually be a thin, compliant structure that does not restrict the motion of either ventricle or either atria. However, in constrictive pericarditis, that pericardium is now a thickened rind, and the ventricles are not allowed to expand as they normally would. So they are more reliant on each other's filling. They have to take turns, essentially, when it comes to diastolic filling. In addition to taking turns with diastolic filling, the other hallmark sign relates to how the pressures in the heart are no longer concordant with the pressures in the thorax, and that's because of this thickened rind. And so venous drainage into the heart from the thoracic vessels, that being the pulmonary veins and the superior vena cava, is also going to be significantly altered in patients with this thickened rind around the heart. So in short, constrictive pericarditis, it's an impairment of diastolic filling, as can also be seen in restrictive cardiomyopathy. It is not necessarily a systolic problem. And when we try to establish the diagnosis, two of the hallmark features are ventricular interdependence, which relates to changes in stroke volume with respiration between the two ventricles, and then intrathoracic intracardiac dissociation, which relates more so to the changes in filling to the left ventricle with respiration. That's absolutely fantastic. And I'll just add to that, or even just reiterate it. In constriction, it's a diastolic problem. It's a filling issue. And that's basically what you're seeing in symptomatology. It's also what you're seeing invasively and non-invasively. But it's not just a filling problem alone in constriction. In restriction, yes, you have a really tight left ventricle or right ventricle or both. And so filling is a big problem. The heart cannot drink well. And if it can't drink well, it's not going to be able to produce the cardiac output that we require, or it's definitely going to have really high filling pressures. But in constriction, you have this additional problem of not filling well, but not because of the myocardium or the meat of the heart being diseased, but rather because you have this shell around the heart. The pericardium is stiff and fixed. And when you do that, not only do you not fill well, but you also pit the left ventricle against the right ventricle. You make them enemies, not even frenemies. You make them enemies. And that's because normally when the right ventricle drinks, it fills up and it's got that free wall that expands and everybody's very happy. And at the same time, you have the left ventricle that's also filling up and it's very happy. But when you have locked off that free wall expansion in the RV, 
it's like a brain bleed inside of the skull. You can't expand, and so other brain tissue suffers. Well, that's exactly what's happening. As the RV expands and drinks, it actually pushes the septum over. And when it does that, it actually impedes the inflow into the left ventricle. And when you do that, you're not filling the left ventricle as much. And so this occurs most often during inspiration when the RV is getting a lot of that blood flow because of the changes in the intrathoracic pressure, as we talked about. And so you end up having this ventricular discordance, which is what we were saying is more specific to constriction rather than just restriction. And so you can see this invasively with the calf, like we just described, and we'll have pictures for everyone to look on the blog. And you can also do it non-invasively by looking at the inflow patterns into the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve and seeing how they take turns during inspiration. The tricuspid valve has more of the drinking and there's more flow across the tricuspid valve. And then during expiration, the mitral valve has more of the drinking and there's more inflow across the mitral valve as the LV fills a little bit better. Yeah, that was a great explanation both Charlie and Dan. And you're just thinking about the enemies in constriction that the LV and the RV are. They're essentially tugging against that septum. As the RV fills in inspiration, the septum bows towards the left. And as the LV fills during expiration, the septum bows to the right. And we're not really seeing that on the echo, correct me if I'm wrong, but we do see evidence of ventricular interdependence, classic of constriction, as well as a handful of other possibilities, as you pointed out, in the invasive left heart cath. There are a few other features in the echocardiogram that point us more towards a constricted physiology as opposed to a restricted physiology. And remember, restriction is a disease of the myocardium. It's a failure of relaxation, which has a number of underlying issues in terms of compliance and viscoelastic factors. But the tissue Doppler is very telling here. So with restriction, the relaxation is impaired. And so the myocardium doesn't move very much. And so you'll have a decreased annular E prime tissue Doppler velocities. However, in this context, even though the clinical picture could map onto a restricted physiology, you have normal or elevated E-prime velocities. The medial velocity is 9, and the lateral E-prime is 8 centimeters per second. And so that's normal or elevated E-prime velocity that is more consistent with constriction. Furthermore, here, the medial E-prime is higher than the lateral E-prime. And so in the normal heart, without constriction, the lateral E-prime is faster. The lateral annulus of the mitral valve moves to a greater degree because the medial annulus is tethered by the septum. Conversely, in constricted pericarditis, you'll have annulus reverses, whereby the lateral annulus is tethered by the pericardium. And we're, you know, this is not a huge difference, but we're seeing a little bit of that as well. We definitely need more information. So I'm excited to hear what more data you guys got in this situation. Yeah, sure. So on expiration, you get more filling on the left side of the heart into the LV, and that pushes the interventricular septum to the right, and that kind of also pushes blood backwards into the hepatic veins. And so at end expiration, you're going to get hepatic vein reversals. Ah, I see. So what you're saying is in constriction, because you have predominantly left-sided filling because of that disconnect between the intrathoracic and intracardiac pressures, in expiration, the LV fills that's referred with a septum bowing toward the right side, and that pressure waveform is referred back to the RV, the RA, the IVC, and eventually hepatic veins, such that in constriction, you get hepatic vein diastolic flow reversal predominantly in expiration. And in contrast, in restriction, you don't have that ventricular interdependence. And in inspiration is when the RV tends to fill, because that's when the thorax creates a vacuum for blood to pour into the RV. But that stiff RV isn't able to accept all that blood. So it's predominantly in inspiration where that pressure wave is referred back. So in restriction, you get predominantly inspiratory diastolic flow reversal in the hepatic veins. Is that fair? That is fair. That's all right. Awesome. This is just such a great example of how the echo is so additive in our understanding of this patient. And restriction and constriction is one of the things that get me just so excited because they're challenging to appreciate. But the signs and symptoms, and we went over some of the key diagnostic tests that we could do that Mayo has actually really helped standardize and help people across the land and across the world. But it's really looking at the heart from so many different vantage points. Like even the ECG, you have the 12 leads, but effectively it's looking at the one heart from 12 different vantage points. With so many of these studies, you're basically looking at the filling of the heart from so many different vantage points, whether it's up in the neck veins on physical exam or down in the IVC and the liver or the paddock with the echo and similarly with the catheterization as well. So this really gets me going, this kind of discussion. I'm really excited to hear what happens next. Yeah, and I'll say that so much of my understanding of echo in general, but also in like constriction, restriction, and all these other related entities comes from the echo manual from uh, Dr. J.O. And so it's just, uh, there's so much education coming out of there and it's been so helpful to have all these resources. 
That's great to hear. We're definitely very grateful to learn from such incredible teachers here who have helped standardize a lot of these things in the field. So going on with the case, after we were in the left ventricle and the right ventricle, we then advance the catheter from the right ventricle on up to the pulmonary arterial wedge. And there we see that the pulmonary arterial wedge pressure is mildly elevated to about 17. And there's some slight increase in the V waves, maybe up to 24 or 25, but not more than that. And that V wave is much less than we expected for severe mitral regurgitation. In addition, now in normal physiology, with inspiration, both the wedge pressure and the LV diastolic pressures are subject to changes in intrathoracic pressure. Thus, they should decrease to the same extent with inspiration. However, here, the wedge goes down more than the LV. Therefore, driving pressure of filling from the wedge to the left ventricle decreases significantly. This suggests that the LV is not subject to intrathoracic pressure changes. This is intrathoracic intracardiac dissociation. Now, that's a tongue twister. Intrathoracic intracardiac dissociation, huh? Wooster! Onomatopoeia. <laughs> <laughs> That strongly suggests an abnormal pericardium and much less likely to be due to these other diseases I was talking about earlier, like COPD or obesity. But I'm still surprised. Why weren't there larger V waves on cath with that severe MR on echo? I'm going to stop you right there. So what you're saying is that ventricular interdependence, like the LV systolic pressure increasing with the RV systolic pressure decreasing and vice versa, you can see that in constriction, but also COPD and obesity, whereas this dissociation between the wedge and the LV EDP essentially proves that you have intrathoracic, intracardiac dissociation and makes it much more likely that interventricular interdependence is from constriction and not some other physiology because obesity and COPD wouldn't cause that. That's a really great point. And just to bring us back, so the V waves, we're talking about these V waves. Remember that basically when we're measuring the wedge, what we're measuring is if there's no mitral stenosis, we're measuring the pressures inside of the ventricle during diastole and ancestry, actually. But when the mitral valve is closed, we're not really measuring the ventricle during systole because the mitral valve is closed and we have separated the left ventricle from the left atrium. And therefore, remember, we're in the pulmonary veins. We're wedged off from the pulmonary artery. We're sensing what's going on in the pulmonary veins and the pulmonary veins are sensing what's going on in the left atrium. If the mitral valve is completely perfect and there's no mitral regurgitation, then we're not really sensing anything that's going on in the left ventricle directly. But when you have, let's say, torrential mitral regurgitation, let's just say you literally snipped out all of the mitral valve and you have zero mitral valve, then the left ventricle and the left atrium are one chamber. And what you will see on cath is these ginormous V waves. Those V waves are going on during systole. And you're seeing these crazy waves as the left ventricle squeezes down and basically generates pressure that we have some flow going out of the aortic valve, but we also have a ton of flow going out back into the left atrium. And that rise in pressure from the rise in volume in the left atrium is reflected back on the PA catheter that's sitting in that wedge position. So what you're saying is, hey guys, the whole thing is that this patient's coming in for mitral regurgitation, right? If they got to us, we definitely are expecting some bad MR. And we have some conflicting signs and symptoms of the MR. And now here we're at, we're, we're trying to measure the actual waves that are coming out from the ventricle through this quote unquote very leaky mitral valve. And I'm not impressed with what I'm seeing. So is there mitral regurgitation that's severe? Is there not? What's going on? And is that, do I have that right? Is that what's bothering you right now? Yeah, absolutely. That was spot on. And because of this discordance there, once again, as we've been saying, when two things don't seem to match up, then we need more information. And because of this discordance, we did a left ventriculogram. The left ventriculogram showed normal systolic function with a normal-sized LV, and there's 3-plus out of 4-plus mitral regurgitation with a severely dilated left atrium. So in reflection on that, we were thinking the very large left atrium absorbs some of that V-wave. Got it. I also see on the LV-gram that even before the dye is injected, there is a big chunk of calcium in that posterior pericardium. So, putting it all together... The mitral regurgitation is severe. There's a three out of six holosystolic murmur at the apex. That's corroborated by echocardiography and the left ventriculogram. And on top of that, it looks like there's constriction too. Things that go along with that are the jugular venous pressure with prominent descents and the positive Kussmalls. We have an echocardiogram with hepatic vein expiratory diastolic flow reversals 
annulus reversus, and invasive hemodynamics with multiple classic features of constrictive pericarditis, including the right atrial pressure with rapid X and Y descents, diastolic equalization, dip and plateau, ventricular interdependence, and the tongue twister, intrathoracic intracardiac dissociation. The early diastolic sound on exam, that's unclear to me if it's a filling sound or S3 from the mitral regurgitation or a pericardial knock from constriction. Great summary, Mays. So for the mitral valve, she does have severe symptomatic mitral regurgitation. As mentioned before, she will need mitral valve replacement rather than repair, since that severe subalar thickening will make repair extremely difficult with suboptimal results. In regards to the tricuspid regurgitation, remember that the valve guidelines give a class 2 indication on intervening on mild or moderate tricuspid regurgitation due to annual dilation, which is defined as over 40 millimeters, or in the presence of primary hypertension, if the patient is already undergoing left-sided valve surgery. So she'll need tricuspid valve repair as well. Remember, the only class 1 indication for tricuspid valve intervention is severe TR at the time of left-sided valve surgery. Agreed. And with constrictive pericarditis, she needs a radical pericardiectomy at the time of this mitral valve replacement and tricuspid valve repair. And another fun pearl is that even if the TR wasn't moderate or even mild, post-pericardiectomy, the tricuspid and mitral annuli are free to expand and commonly do so. Thus, it's common to have significant increased atrioventricular valve regurgitation post-pericardiectomy, particularly of the tricuspid valve, would certainly repair that tricuspid valve. Yeah, this is really crazy because Amith and I were talking about this the other day, how you have certain times uh, pathophysiology has set itself up and you're going to go correct that pathophysiology. And the result, usually, let's say with a surgical fix, is it sets up an entirely new physiology. So for example, with torrential mitral regurgitation, if you have a left ventricle that looks normal, let's say its CF is 55%, then we know that the EF is just looking at that left ventricle as you know how much blood it started and how much blood is there at the end. But we're not really assessing whether a ton of that went out of the mitral valve or a ton of that went out the aortic valve. And so if you have an ejection fraction that's like relatively normal, and now you basically took away that mitral regurgitation, now that ventricle has to send out all of its blood through the aortic valve, and it may not be able to do that because with the mitral regurgitation, with the big annulus, the path of least resistance was actually out the mitral valve rather than that normal size LVOT. And so when you've basically now put in a competent valve that won't allow any of the backflow, that left ventricle is like, wait, I used to send it all that way. Now I can only send it that way. And so its contractility was probably not that great to begin with. And now we expose that by changing uh, the situation that we've removed the pop-off valve. And so now the ejection fraction is reduced. And that's not necessarily because the contractility got worse during the operation. And so you basically like un unroofed an underlying contractility issue. But here you have multiple things going on, let's say with this proposed surgery, you're going to remove the pop-off valve of the mitral regurgitation, but at the same time, you're going to improve filling with uh, stripping of this pericardium. And now filling will be better and you don't have that intraventricular dependence set up anymore. So it just would be really fascinating to hear what the final result is with this particular patient and her hemodynamics. That was great. Thank you very much for adding it. And I personally, I just always like to go back to what we learned in med school in terms of the determinants of stroke volume being preload, afterload, contractility. And so with mitral regurgitation, when you have severe MR, you have increased preload to the ventricle because all of it's emptying out of the left atrium. So in early diastole, there's increased preload. And then you have decreased afterload. And that's just like that pop-off valve that you were talking about. So then when you take away that mitral regurgitation with the valve replacement or repair, We've now decreased the preload and increased the afterload to the left ventricle. And so now the stroke volume is going to go down significantly. Yeah, that's a wonderful explanation there. So what did you guys do with this patient? What was the outcome? Yeah, we put a plan in place for mitral valve replacement, tricuspid valve repair, and radical pericardiectomy. The surgeon intraoperatively described findings that were consistent with chronic bilateral pleuritis, including significant pericardial thickening with heavy calcification at parts requiring hours to remove the pericardium. Her post-operative course was unremarkable. She felt better just by the time she left the hospital. And on follow-up, she actually feels a lot better overall. Wow, guys, what a tremendous, fascinating case with so many nuances in terms of complicated hemodynamics and just such a tremendous eventual outcome. I do want to reflect a little bit about how we got here for this patient. One is the issue of 
constricted pericarditis. And I think of that as the scar tissue developing from some sort of injury trigger. And so the question that arises in my mind is, what was the injury trigger to begin with? And there are so many different ideologies. We covered that in a prior episode, and I'm sure we'll cover it again. But what jumps out at me is that this is a patient who does have a history of systemic lupus erythematosus. And I'm not sure if her bouts of presumably she's had acute pericarditis or indolent pericardial inflammation, at least in the past. And if that was the ideology or if you had thoughts about that. And then the second ideologic question that comes to my mind is why did she have severe mitral regurgitation and moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation? And as you pointed out, Maze, this wasn't a functional TR from dilated ventricles with increased tethering forces. And it didn't look like there was abnormality in the leaflets to suggest a primary valvular regurgitant process. And I'm wondering if it's just, if we think that this is just from annular dilation because of atrial enlargement and dilation from elevated filling pressures that maybe are secondary to the constriction to begin with. So just putting it all together ideologically, do you guys have any thoughts on that? So I think from the pericarditis standpoint, she had bouts of acute pericarditis in the setting of her lupus. That was the most likely, most probable cause of the pericarditis. In terms of the valvular disease, there was valvular and subvalvular thickening. So the thought there was, could this be post-inflammatory valvular disease? And that was driving the TR and the MR that she presented with. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's just so amazing to think about all the different ways that lupus can affect the heart and really every tissue within that heart. You can think about coronary disease as patients certainly have accelerated atherosclerosis and it's an important risk-enhancing factor in the new prevention guidelines. It can certainly cause myocarditis. In this case, it caused pericarditis. We're talking about valvulitis with Lehman Sachs endocarditis potentially, even conduction disease with neonatal lupus. And so we think about the foreground and the current presentation, but she comes with a background that really helps tie in so much of her presentation. And I really applaud you guys for going through this complicated case that was billed as one issue, but having the insight and foresight to really go through every possible ideology and using multimodal imaging and invasive hemodynamics to figure it out and then treat her well. So it's just, I think it really shows the capabilities and the training that you guys all receive. And so I'd love to ask you guys, one, what made you all choose cardiology? What do you love about cardiology? And how are you enjoying training at the Mayo Clinic? I actually came into residency thinking I was going to be a geriatrician. A lot of my mentors throughout medical school were geriatricians. And I was just so fascinated with geriatric principles of how we approach care with the elderly. But I actually started in the CCU my first week as an intern. I think Dan was actually my senior resident. And so you can imagine how much fun that was. And I was just immediately captivated by the pathophysiology and pathology of cardiology. I mean, I didn't understand 90% of what was being said on rounds, but I had great teachers. And so my interests evolved over time to actually fit more in with geriatric cardiology. So I like cardiology as a, a clinical principle, and then I enjoy taking care of, of geriatric patients as a population. And cardiology itself lends itself really nicely to that interplay. In terms of training at Mayo, rarely do things captivate me as much as Mayo did when I interviewed here. So when I came for my fellowship interview, I think I left that day, walked back to the hotel and called my parents and my husband and said, this place is magical and I want to come here. And it's been such an amazing place to train, to get to work with my incredible co-fellows, to get to work with attendings who are at the forefront of all of these guidelines, who are phenomenal educators. One thing that really stood out for me in general about the program was the structure of training. So the first year is actually dedicated to the labs. So you'll spend time in the cath lab, echo lab, nuclear lab, ECG lab, EP lab. And the whole point of that is to give you a strong fundamental foundation of cardiology so that when you move into clinical practice, such as working in the CCU or running the consult service as a second year fellow, you have a great understanding of how to read nuclear studies, how to read echoes, how to interpret coronary angiograms. And so that structure is unique to Mayo, and it's been just a great way to train, and it's a way that I like to think. And so for me, it really jived with my learning style, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, this is Karosh. I echo everything that May said. From a cardiology standpoint, I've always loved cardiology, mainly because every other organ needs perfusion from the heart, and so the most important organ, I think. That's why I chose cardiology. And why I chose Mayo 
a little more simple for me. I love dark chocolate cake. And when I came to my interview, I had the best dark chocolate cake I ever had in my life. And so because of that, uh, that's only partly true. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I think one of the most important things that I noticed here is the perfect balance of service and education. You get a really great clinical experience with some of the best in the field, but you still have time to go home and read around your patients and read around cases and see really bread and butter cases, but also the really complex cases. And I think that's really going to help me in my future career as well. This is Charlie here. I absolutely agree with everything that Mays and Croce have said, and there's lots of reasons why I chose to train here. For me, it was actually right after my interview day, I went down the street and I had a delicious fresh brewed IPA for about $2, which was very different from where I was doing residency. That was refreshing. But in addition to that, in terms of why I chose cardiology, a lot of it was from a knowledge standpoint, I really love the overlay of anatomy and physiology. And one of the reasons why I really enjoy hemodynamics and adult congenital heart disease, this, this complex interplay between anatomy and physiology, and it just really gets me going. And in addition, you get to have long-term patient relationships in cardiology. And at the same time, you get to take care of patients on an inpatient service who have acute needs. So that balance of getting to do everything you'd like and not really having to compromise to one setting or the other. And then in terms of training here at Mayo, just as Mays was saying, the first year is really dedicated to learning how to interpret primary data from a cardiology standpoint. That really appealed to me because it really helps us become better clinicians that we can interpret our own studies. And I think actually, as we talked about, one thing that was unique is how flexible the program is here to cater to your particular interest. And as I'm very interested in hemodynamics, the third year, which Kroosh got to do with me as well, is that we did clinic with Dr. Nishimura and other people who specialize in hemodynamics. And then the next day, we might be doing that patient's echo or that patient's catheterization and then following up with that patient or doing their intraoperative echo. So within a few days, you have multiple contact points for a patient. And it really makes for a really well-rounded learning experience that I couldn't find anywhere else. And because Karosh brought up food, I think we have to mention just how many grocery stores are in Rochester. And Karosh will frequently hit six or seven of them on a weekend. Up to eight. Up to eight. He has a problem. It's a lot of grocery shopping. shopping. (laughs) My friends, between the farmer's market and grocery shopping and the outdoors (laughs) and all of the fantastic cardiology and training, this has just been such a terrific discussion. I'm so glad to have had y'all on to share this case, the teaching, and your love for cardiology and the Mayo Clinic. Thank you for joining us. Amen to that, guys. This is amazing. Thanks so much for having us. We had a blast. Honored to contribute. Thank you very much. Hashtag neck veins. (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) One of the things that I'm very grateful for in terms of training at Mayo Clinic is learning from world-renowned teachers and researchers and clinicians. And today I'm honored to introduce Dr. Nishimura, who will be giving our ECPR addition to this case and breaking it down for us. He has been the chair of the VALD guidelines since 2004, and in addition, he has established many of the hemodynamic principles that we all take for granted in our echo lab and on our hemodynamic catheterizations. He's an incredible clinician that people send patients to him from all over the country, and everyone here looks up to him for his experience and knowledge in terms of physical exam and also putting together these discrepancies. Dr. Nishimura. So I think you've all articulated all the nuances of this case, but to me, the most important aspect was the fact that at the fellow level, you you actually picked up the entire discrepancy between what she came for and what she ended up having. And when she came, we always get calls from referring physicians. They say, we got this great case because this person probably has a lupus valvulitis with severe mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation, and please see her, evaluate her, and get her fixed. But it was really the physical examination of that elevated venous pressure, the rapid X and Y descents that just said, boy, there's something else going on. And that's why you all started thinking of something like a pericardial disease. The other thing to notice is that, as Karosh said, the left ventricle is of normal size. And mitral regurgitation itself should not give a normal size left ventricle unless something is preventing that from happening. 
and that is either the constrictive pericarditis that you thought of, or remember she was also on Plaquenil, which can give some type of a myocardial restrictive disease. So even though she came with the mitral regurgitation, the normal size left ventricle, and the elevation of venous pressure with the rapid descent said that there's more going on, and we were then faced with the differential diagnosed constrictive pericarditis versus restrictive cardiomyopathy. And I will give the historical event here is that uh, 20, 30 years ago when I was in training, we would always go and perform imaging and cardiac catheterization on these patients. And in the end, our final comment would be, well, there's elevation and equalization of diastolic pressures with early rapid filling, and the findings are consistent with either constrictive pericarditis or restrictive cardiomyopathy. And on the basis of that, if you felt that constriction was a possibility, you'd have the surgeon do the exploratory thoracotomy and remove the pericardium because we didn't have all of the other findings. Now, there are a lot of nuances here that you all described, the association of intrathoracic and intracardiac pressures, the enhancement of ventricular interaction. But in the end, from the clinical standpoint with this woman who's got calcification on that lateral chest x-ray, I think no matter what we found, we would have gone in and said, this person needs a complete pericardiectomy. And it's a completely different operation than a mitral valve operation. So I, I was very pleased that our fellows were able to put this kind of discrepancy together to say, hey, we've got to look at something else. Behind every great fellowship is a fantastic group of fellows, but there's also a great team of program directors and associate program directors and education coordinators who help keep things running. So I'm honored to introduce Dr. Frank Brozovich, our program director. There are many great things about Dr. Brozovich. Just to name a few of them, he's always got an open door policy. You can shoot him an email. You can stop by his office. I actually stopped by his office earlier today just to say hi on my way to the Echo Lab. He's super responsive, and he's always willing to work with you as you modify your interests. He's constantly touching base and helping us modify our schedules and figuring out what interests us and helping us career plan and, and develop our niches as we progress through our academic and clinical careers. On top of that, he's always super receptive to feedback. We've had lots of changes to the program structure come from the fellows, and again, with an open door and open ear policy, we really couldn't ask for a better program director. Dr. Brozovich? My name is Frank Brozovich, and I'm the program director for the Cardiology Fellowship at Mayo Clinic. I'd like to thank Dr. Lee, Jane, and Shireen for allowing me to spend a few minutes telling you about our program. I think the way to sum up our philosophy of training is give you a quote by Dr. Andrew Huxley, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology. And what Huxley said is, you're known for who you train, not for what you've done. So we're here to help you define your passion. Our mission is to train the next generation of leaders in academic medicine, cardiology, whether that be in clinical cardiology or in research. Fellows at the Mayo Clinic are not required for service. They're here for their education. And I think the best way to demonstrate this is take an example from the COVID crisis. When COVID hit, Fellows were not required to cover non-cardiology services. Fellows remained in the hospital on our CICU and also on our cardiology consult services, but all other fellows were at home, and we had four to five hours of educational Zoom conferences a day so they could continue their education throughout the crisis. Now, you did have non-face-to-face -face and phone visits for clinic, but you did have continuous educational activities throughout COVID. Now, our program is designed to give you all of your COCATS training within the first two years. Our first year of training is generally laboratory-based and the second year clinically-based, but this leaves the third year for research or academic training. This third year of research is entirely funded by our department, so that does not restrict your ability to work on any individual project or any individual faculty member. Now, for fellows that we want or require more research training, we have a T32, which can support greater than two years of research training. A master's in clinical investigation is available to every fellow, and this is a program that will develop epidemiological biostatistics and study design skills, and there's a new program in entrepreneurship, and these programs are entirely subsidized by our department. 
Now, there is an advanced fellowship in every accredited cardiology subspecialty, and we have unaccredited programs in every program known to mankind and then some, and that includes multimodality imaging, advanced echo, vascular medicine, amyloid heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, and prevention. Because we're a big program that doesn't require a service from our fellows, we have the flexibility to design your training around your interests. Now, everybody at Mayo Clinic is part of the team. Our educational team includes myself, Drs. Cullen and Dr. Dunway, who are the associate program directors, as well as our EPCs, Chris, Lisa, Tammy, and Ashley, and we're here to help you. But you're also part of a team when you're working here, and that includes the clinical assistants, the internal medicine residents, the nursing staff, your fellow fellows, and the faculty. You will train alongside world experts in every disease process, as well as research training by a world expert. And these people here to help you develop your career. Now, our program values diversity and inclusion. And in fact, this was one of the founding principles of Mayo Clinic. When William Mayo opened the Plummer Building in 1912, he stated, within its walls, all classes of people the poor as well as the rich, without regard to color or creed, shall be cared for without discrimination. So this really does demonstrate that diversity and inclusion is part of our fabric and has always been part of our fabric. Thanks for your time. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.